Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Saturday, August 6th. Of course, all of you listeners will be hearing this podcast on Sunday, August 7th. Nevertheless, as I indicated earlier in the week, I'm trying to date these shows based off of the day of matches I'll be speaking about on each episode. So in this instance, I'm going to focus on what was an exciting semifinal Saturday on the WTA Tour. I will be talking about all the ATP events happening this weekend. Going to do that on a different podcast, as you've seen throughout the week. So many events happening in the professional tennis world. We've got three on the women's side, the two ATP events happening in Los Cabos and Washington, D.C. It's just been a little bit easier for me to separate each of these events, separate each of these tours into two separate podcasts. That way, I can properly focus on all of the storylines that have emerged throughout the week, and certainly the WTA Tour delivered the goods this week. We've had three tour-level events, the WTA 500-level event happening in San Jose, the 250 event happening in D.C., of course, the 125 happening in Romania. So many different storylines for us to touch on, even in a semifinal Saturday recap mode, where in theory, we'd only have two matches to touch on. Of course, I didn't get the chance to talk much about Friday's quarterfinal action, given all of the rain that happened throughout the course of the day, so I may sneak in some quarterfinal thoughts on today's show as well, but of course the place I'm going to start is in San Jose. Daria Kasatkina up to third in the points race as she reaches her second consecutive San Jose final, first final in this 2022 season. Kasatkina was exceptional in a straight set semifinal victory over Paula Bedosa. You look for Kasatkina. Again, she's up to number three in the points race. She's done it week in, week out, tournament in, tournament out. I know I focused on her quite a bit on our last episode of the mini break. I want to talk in particular about how she identified the weaknesses of Paula Bedosa, was just relentless in attacking that weakness and found herself playing far more offense than I'm t- than typically you would see from Kasatkina. So I want to talk about her victory over Paula Bedosa, how her ability to beat Bedosa in such a different fashion then she beat Arena Sabalenka. Just speaks to the upside of the rising Russian talent, of course. On the other side of the net from Kasatkina in the San Jose final will be Shelby Rogers. Shelby Rogers has emerged as a tour de force on hard courts over the past 28 months. You can really draw things back all the way to August 2020. Shelby Rogers has been a completely different player on hard courts since the start of this pandemic era on the WTA Tour. Now she reached 
which is her first final on hard courts during that stretch of time. But she's made seven total quarterfinals and 25 total events on the hard courts since August 2020. She now has 12 top 20 wins, a 12-7 and record against top 20 players as she finds herself in the San Jose final. An impressive 6-3-6-4 victory for her over Kudermatova in the semifinals. An impressive straight set victory over Anissa Mova in the quarterfinals. Just about everything Shelby's done on her run to this San Jose final has been impressive. And I want to talk about what has allowed Shelby to have this sort of success, not only this week, but again, over the past 28 months on hard courts. Of course, that's just the action in San Jose. You have the revenge of the Russians continuing in Washington, D.C. Of course, Kasatkina, uh, Kudermetova, all of these Russian, Belarusian players not allowed to play the 2022 Wimbledon. They are making the most of their time off this week as another one of those young Russian talented players, Ludmilla Samsonova, into the final of the City Open. Boy, did Samsonova need this week of action. She was very much under 500 coming into this week of play, was 10 and 14 overall on the year, now 14 and 14, as she's earned four impressive victories on her way to the final. She cruised in her semifinal against Wang Shiyu, a one in one victory, but that's not the match I want to discuss on today's show regarding Samsonova. For me, her most impressive victory certainly came against Emma Raducanu in the quarterfinals. Samsonova faced four set points in that first set, ultimately was able to overcome each of them with her patented power hitting. Samsonova into the final of the City Open where she'll face the veterans veteran in Kaya Kanepi. Kanepi quietly having one of her best seasons of her career. And, you know, Kanepi's just relentless in the sort of tennis that she plays. We can get into that style here on today's show. And then just a quick update on the action in Romania as well. The run of Anna Bogdan continues. She's had two spectacular weeks in a row now on the WTA Tour, this one ending up in a title in Romania. Just want to remind all of you what makes Bogdan a dangerous foe for any player she faces down the home stretch of this 2022 season. So again, today's topics here on this podcast going to be the WTA action in San Jose, Washington, D.C., and Romania. Again, I will be recording a separate episode to break down all the ATP actions so we don't get behind, so we'll be able to cleanly focus on next week's 1,000-level event happening in Canada. Of course, the reason we're able to do these things day in, day out here at Cracked Rackets is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. We're immensely grateful all of you continue to tune in. We're immensely grateful to those of you who share these podcasts with your friends. Of course, we're always grateful for those of you who take the time to go leave that five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a little note, the things you like, the things you'd like us to do more of. Immensely grateful to all of you who have engaged with us and made this Cracked Rackets community so special. Of course, we know it's our job to keep you the most well-informed, best-educated fans in the business. That's why we're podcasting here on a weekend. If you don't, you're just going to miss out on some of the action. So again, we appreciate all of you who trust us to keep you up to date on everything happening in the tennis world. Of course, another massive shout out to our friends over at Tennis Point who support this show day in, day out. Understand tennis fans deserve a daily podcast breaking down all the action. Of course, they help tennis players every day by providing the best equipment at the lowest prices. You can find everything you're looking for. Rackets, strings, shoes, clothing, all in one location. Tennis-point.com. Use our 
our promo code CR15 to get 15% off all of your sale items. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point, the symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into it. Another exciting weekend on the WTA Tour. We're going to start in San Jose, host to our WTA 500-level event. Of course, we already broke down the track record of success for Daria Kasakina since tennis resumed in August 2020. She's consistently won about two-thirds of her matches since August 2020. As such, she's steadily risen back up the WTA rankings. Of course, Kasakina reached the top 10 in October of 2018. Was really her breakout season at age 21. Made the quarterfinals, I believe, that year of the French Open. A bunch of success at the 250-500 level events throughout the course of the year as well. But of course, she quickly fell out of the top 10. And the Kasakina we've seen since August 2020 is just a far more consistent player, far capable of beating opponents in a variety of ways. And the variety she showed to knock off Arena Sabalenka and Paula Bedosa consecutively, it's a testament to why she's number three in the points race this season. You look for Kasakina, 6-2, 6-4 victory over Paula Bedosa. That first set she played against Bedosa might have been the highest level of tennis I've ever seen from Daria Kasatkina. Her ability to just identify, okay, the way I'm hurting Bedosa is getting her stretched on the forehand wing, just relentlessly attacking that deuce side of the court. I have never seen Kasatkina hit her inside in forehand as viciously and as aggressively and with such depth as she just did repeatedly against Paula Bedosa. And Bedosa gets an early hold, 4-1 love in that first set. And, you know, Kasakina able to get on the board as well. It felt like things were steady, but then the onslaught started coming from Daria Kasakina, who just was landing return after return at the feet of Paula Bedosa, changing up the spins she used on those returns of serve as well, sometimes just playing high and heavy tennis. By that, I mean elevating the ball 10 feet, 12 feet above the net. Tough to tell with the depth perception of the camera angle, but just again, it may not have been the heaviest shot, but the depth of the shot, the height of the shot, there just wasn't much Paula Bedosa could do. And, you know, for Paula Bedosa to hold for one love in that opening set, for Paula Bedosa to get the two games she did in set number one, it just required so much effort from her. She had to hit her forehand, dare I say, Juan Martin Del Potro-esque. There was actually times when I was watching Bedosa where I thought, is that Allie Risk on the other side of the court with how much she was trying to flatten out her ground strokes, just trying to do anything to hit through Kasakina? She couldn't. Kasakina was just exceptionally fluid in the outer thirds of the court. And I don't mean to discredit Bedosa's performance because while she served miserably, in set number one, only made 43% of her first serves, 9 of 21. When you make nine first serves in an opening set, you're probably not going to win it, especially when you're playing a top five returner, as Kasakina is on the WTA Tour. But, you know, again, it was just the relentlessness of that Kasakina return, her ability to change up her targets, how well she was hitting the cross-court forehand. I can't emphasize this enough. I've never seen her hit the cross-court forehand that 
relentlessly, I already used that word, that successfully is probably the best word to use here. It was impressive. And of course, Kasakina has always been impressive hitting the inside out, her ability to find that inside out forehand on the ad side of the court, her, you know, her quickness, her footwork, her, the small steps that she takes to get around that ball, dare I say, and she's been doing it a little bit longer, but you know, it's Carlos Alcaraz-esque in its efficiency. And it's just remark, you know, again, it's just remarkably impressive. And just her ability to dictate the terms of play from six feet behind the baseline, change direction, her backhand, it's just so natural. It's just so easy for her to absorb pace and generate depth off that wing. Of course, she's comfortable playing the slice, playing uh, the short angle ball off of that backhand as well. She just, you know, had Paula Bedosa on a string, had Paula Bedosa, dare I say to quote this again, my favorite quote because it just is so applicable to tennis she had her going ariana grande side to side just there was not much paul bedosa could do to manufacture any easy offense in set number one and that's what daria kasakina does to you even against an arena sabalenka who you know sabalenka has that overwhelming power right and so that was a different game style for Kasakina. She just had to absorb, redirect, you know, wait for the Sabalenka errors to compile. That's not what Paula Bedosa was doing in set number one. You know, Paula Bedosa was on her back foot because the match was just being played on Kasakina's terms. She went 16 of 20 points on serve in the opening set, didn't face a break point, got up an early break and kind of just cruised from there, was swinging so freely. But, you know, credit to Paula Bedosa who sticks around in set number two, who started playing a little bit, you know, not just a little bit, much more patiently and, A, started making way more first serves. That first serve percentage from 43% in set one jumps to 74% in set number two. Obviously, that's going to help any player. But again, Kasakina stayed relentless on the return of serve and just, it was the depth. It was the defensiveness of her The defensiveness that allowed her return to be aggressive because her returns were just so neutralizing. There were just so few, you know, the plus one opportunities were so few and far between for Bedosa, who again became patient, forced Kasakina to have to manufacture a little bit more offense. In particular, Kasakina goes down 4-3. Uh, excuse me, Bedosa goes down 4-3, break of serve in the second set. Kasakina, you know, up a set and a break now, in control of the match. Bedosa goes into brick wall mode. Bedosa forces Kasakina to have to manufacture some inside-out, inside-in forehands, and Kasakina wasn't able to do it in that moment. She blinked, and Bedosa's able to get that break back 4-4 all, but ultimately what decided this match, the Paula Bedosa forehand broke down. In set number two, she just clipped so many forehand return or forehand approaches, clipped so many forehand swinging volleys into the net or started missing them long subsequently. And just, you know, again, that's the sort of doubt Kasakina will inject into you with the pressure she puts on you. But, you know, you think of the obvious examples serving at four all, Bedosa misses two forehands in the net. She had a breakpoint chance down five four. She had, I think, three or four breakpoint chances down five four. But on one of them in particular, she opens up the forehand swinging volley. All she has to do is make that ball down the line. She misses it in the net. Ultimately, Kasakina holds and takes a 6 2, 6 4 victory. And again, for Kasakina, it's her first final of the 2022 season, her fifth final since the start of last year year back-to-back finals for her in San Jose and 
again, you look for Kasakina now overall on the season. I mean, it's been a ridiculous year for her. 31 and 14 overall. She's winning 69% of her matches. That would be a career high for her in a single season. Again, better than her run in 2017. In 2018, she served extraordinarily well, I thought, against a top 15 returner in Paula Bedosa today. And right now, Kasakina's hold percentage, 61.8% coming into the week. That's going to go up after her week of success. It's above her career average. Of course, again, she's also breaking 46.2% of the time, a career high for her, a top five number on the WTA Tour. The numbers say it. The eye test says it. The flexibility, the fluidity in the outer thirds of the court. Paula Bedosa is a good mover. And yet what this match showed is she is a step slower. Maybe not a full step, but at least a half a step slower out of the corners, then Kasakina. Kasakina is so fluid, generating depth out of those corners. Bedosa's fine. She's a good mover, but by comparison to Kasakina, she looks stiff. And that's a credit to the 25-year-old. There's not a lot of players out there who are going to make Paula Bedosa look stiff in and out of corners. That said, I was actually pretty impressed by Bedosa's level in this match and by Bedosa's level overall here in San Jose. She hadn't played in a month since Wimbledon. And, you know, after a shaky first round match against Mandlick, she comes out and down a, you know, down a break, Coco Golf serving for the first set, gets that break back, really raised her level in set number two for a straight set win over Goff. Two and four scoreline against Kisakina which I actually don't think, A, indicates how close and back and forth that second set was, but B, indicates how well Kasakina... You know, again, you'll see that 6-2, 6-4, and maybe you'll think Bedosa didn't play well. No, Kasakina was lights out in the first set. And so if you're Paula Bedosa, semifinal to start off this run-up portion of the season is actually a good way to get the momentum going. But again, Kasakina right now just on a different level, 31-14 overall. I mentioned these numbers on Thursday, but or on Friday, excuse me, she's 20 two and five against players ranked outside the top 20. She's now nine and nine against top 20 players, five and eight against the top 10 this year. That's pretty damn good. Five top 10 victories. You look overall on the stats leaderboard and shout out to our friends at Tennis Abstract, which make it possible for us to look up things like who has the most wins against top 10 players here in the 2022 season. Now, some of these numbers are going to be a week old because, again, uh, they haven't updated to reflect this week. But her five wins against top 10 players, second only to Iga Sviantek. That's how you get yourself third in the points race, folks. And again, you look overall on the year, uh, just remarkable, remarkable season for Daria Kasakina into her first final of the year where she will now face Shelby Rogers. And as good as Kasakina has been this week, you know, Shelby Rogers has certainly been the player of the week in San Jose. The Americans just you know, serve plus one her way to straight set victory after straight set victory. And just, again, I know I mentioned this in our last podcast, but listen to this run for Shelby Rogers. Tell me there's been a more impressive run this season. She beats Andrescu, straight sets. She beats Sakari, straight sets. She beats Anisimova, straight sets. She beats Veronica Kudermetova, straight sets. Tell me there's been a better run to a tournament final this season. If she beats Kasakina, lock it in. This is the most impressive victory at a tournament from any player so far this season if Rodgers can get the job done. And again, I know I mentioned these stats in the intro, but Shelby's just a different player on the hard courts, really, since the start of August 2020. You look for Shelby during this stretch of time, and again, it's always worthwhile to compare where she was before. Shelby played her first 
tour-level match on hard courts in 2010. From 2010 to February 2020, she was four, uh, 54 and 63 overall. That's a 46% win percentage. 54 and 63 overall, 4 and 12 versus top 20 players, two total quarterfinals in 63 total events. Since that time, so from August 2020 until now, she's 39 and 24. So again, she's gone from a 46% win percentage to a 62 win percentage. She's gone from 4 and 12 against top 20 players to 12 and 7 against top 20 players. Two total quarterfinals before August 2020, seven total quarterfinals in the 25 events since. She's become a hardcore force to be reckoned with on the WTA tour and it starts with the serve which has just been lights out this week in San Jose. In four matches, eight sets, she's been broken three total times. She's won over 72% of her first serve points in all four matches that she's played. She's also made over 64% of her first serves in all four matches that she's played. Now, you can just simply say, well, it's a good good week out serving for Shelby Rogers. Well, when she has a good week serving, it's elite. Like, when she has a good week serving, you're just in trouble. If you're her opponent, because again, when she when she's landing that first serve, whether it's her ability to hit the kick out wide on the ad side, which is honestly it's a top five kick serve, in my opinion, on the WTA tour, it might be number one. If you're looking again, I know that's a very specific subgenre of serve, but kicks wide. Does anyone put more action on it than Shelby Rogers? I would say the Naomi Osaka serve is bigger, but action on the ball, I would venture no and just. For Rogers in particular against Anisimova, how great she did spreading the court with that serve. Just again, going kick wide on the ad, going slice wide on the deuce, just to give her a whole runway to work with, with her plus one ball. And I mean, that plus one forehand for Shelby, while it can be erratic when she's landing it with the confidence she's landing with it this week, you're just in trouble as her opponent because she's going to play big. She's going to win a lot of free points. And then when she's winning free points behind her own serve, it allows her to be the aggressor she wants to be on the return of serve. And look, the semifinal against Kudermatova, pretty straightforward. Kudermatova comes out of the gates, plays a really bad service game to start the match, goes down one love, and Shelby cruises from there. Shelby, I mean, it was bullying what Shelby was doing to the Kudermatova forehand return. Just slice serve out wide after slice serve out wide on the ad uh, on the deuce side and then just attacking body or T on the on the on the ad, excuse me, slice wide on the deuce. Uh, it was just you know, Kudermatova started chipping the forehand return. She started swinging through it to see the ball go only go long. She just was running out of answers. And that's what Shelby serve can do to you. And then, of course, Shelby was relentless with her plus one attacking. And while Kudermatova was able to find her rhythm on her own serve, you know, Shelby just relentless, holds her first four service games of the match, gets that insurance break for the set, takes a 6-3 first set. Now, credit to Kudermatova, who came back and, you know, ultimately breaks Shelby very first game of the second set and, you know, is able to consolidate, take a quick two-love lead, but didn't didn't face Shelby, who just keeps swinging, who just stays positive, has that smile on her face, and you know is ultimately able to get that break back for two all. She goes up a break four three, only to be broken right away four four all. Don't worry, she gets that break right back, and just again for Shelby Rogers in today's match, uh, just or in Saturday's match, excuse me, was just she's moving so well. Uh, which has been the biggest difference, if we're being honest, since August 2020. She came back a different player, just 
in elite shape. And with the weapons that she has, is she ever going to be a defensive player? Is she ever going to be the most fleet of foot? No, that's not Shelby Rogers. But by giving herself that extra half second, she just has a little bit longer to swing big on that forehand, a little bit longer to step into that backhand. And again, when she serves like she has this week, she can be elite. And this isn't new from Shelby Rogers, who, look, her numbers aren't crazy this season. She's now 16 and 15 overall in the year. She was 11 and 15. Or excuse me, she was 12 and 15 coming into the week. That said, you look for her again on hard court specifically. She's 10 and 7 this year. Uh, tough first round loss for her in Australia, three sets to Anaconia, but round of 32 in Miami and Indian Wells finals now in San Jose. Of course, you look for her last year. She was a quarter finalist at Indian Wells, round of 16 U.S. Open, round of 16 Australian Open. We're back on the hard courts, and this is where Shelby Rogers makes her bread. And you look for Rogers now with this result. How about this? 29-year-old Rogers up to number 30 in the live rankings. That's a career high for the American at 29 years old. She's now 38th in the points race, but 29 years old and you get to set your schedule. That's the dream for every professional tennis player. I don't know how often I have to reiterate that, but it's just like not everyone can be a world number one. There's only one world number one. There's only 10 top 10 players, but to be one of those players who gets to say, I'm getting into Cincinnati on my own ranking. I'm getting into Montreal on my own ranking. I can play whatever I want. All the big events, wherever I want to go, I'm going to get in because I'm a top 40 player in the world. That's what Shelby Rogers has become since August 2020. And again, smack dab in the prime of her career. She's making the most of that prime and, you know, for Shelby again to Outserve Veronica Kudermatova, who's been a top 10 server this year, to you know hit Anisimova off the court in the plus one battle that was that match. Rogers was just a little bit more efficient, a little bit less erratic in that quarterfinal. Not a disappointing loss for Anisimova, particularly given the three set battle she had played against Pliskova the round prior, but that was a winnable match for Anisimova on paper. And yet, if you watched it play out again, Shelby was just better at the power tennis than Amanda Nisimova was in that match. So credit to Shelby Rogers again into the final here at in San Jose for Shelby. It's her first final since Rio de Janeiro 2016. Shelby Rogers, I believe, is actually looking for that maiden title on the WTA Tour. And in fact, you look for her. She is indeed looking for that maiden title this week. So third final of her career again. This one comes six years after the second. Got to feel good if you're Shelby Rogers in San Jose, of course. Uh, so that's your final. Kasakina Rogers. Kasakina, a 65.3% favorite, uh, according to our friends at Tennis Abstract, certainly given her track record of success. I suppose that does make sense. You looked at our friends at DraftKings, though, a little bit tighter. Kasakina, minus 145. Shelby Rogers, plus 120. Look, it's the unstoppable object meet uh, the immovable object meets the unstoppable force right because the immovable object is Daria Kasatkina who's just going side to side it's really or I guess Shelby Rogers is the immovable object Kasatkina is the unstoppable force I, I think Rogers is the unstoppable force given her power tennis Kasatkina though again as fluid as you're going to find in the outer thirds and you know you feel like maybe one of these days if Shelby serves a little bit more poorly than she is she's just been on fire on the serve hasn't had a bad day this week if that persists 
I mean, there's a reason the Sharks are on Shelby, right? Plus 120, given she's one match over 500 on the year versus a Kasakina, who's number three in the points race. You would think Kasakina would be a little heftier favorite, but that's a testament to how well Shelby's been serving. (sighs) I would lean Kasakina because, again, I think Kasakina is going to be able to just Yes, Shelby will have some clean looks on the plus one forehand, but Kasakina is going to track them down better than any of Rogers' opponents have to date. Look, Anisimova and I guess Sakari's a pretty good mover, but Anisimova and, and Drescu and, you know, Kudermatova, they're not the defensive players Kasakina are. And if Kasakina is, excuse me, and if Kasakina is able to play the offense, she was able to play against Bedosa. That said, these sitting kick serves for Kasakina, Shelby Rogers is going to punish them with her forehand, and it's a little easier for Shelby to do that than it is for Paula Bedosa. Three sets would be my bet. (sighs) Do I lean Shelby? I I just think it's a really good matchup for Shelby because, again, Kasakina spreads the court extraordinarily well. But will she be able to manufacture the pace necessary to get Shelby stretched in the outer thirds? Again, watching... The offense, Kasakian was able to play baseline to baseline. She was better than Bedosa. She'll be better than Shelby Rogers, but it's the intangible things. Rogers serve a little bit bigger than Bedosa's. Rogers a little bit more comfortable going after the return of serve, which, you know, Kasakian had left some bunnies up for Bedosa to capitalize on that she just wasn't always able to do. Oh boy, that's a really tough matchup. I mean, again, if Shelby serves over 65%, she's winning the match. I'm going to lean Kasakina, but I don't feel good about it. That's definitely a fun one, though, for all of us to monitor in San Jose. And with that in mind, again, just some final thoughts to wrap up. What was a very fun WTA 500 week in San Jose? You know, certainly if you're Kudermetova, you're a little disappointed that you just blinked in the opening service game of the match and you were just playing behind against uh, against Shelby for so long. You look for Kudermetova. She's 0-2 in finals this year. Losses to Ostapenko and Potapova. She hasn't won a title since Charleston of last season, and yet you look for Kudermetova, as I mentioned in our last episode, 28-14 and overall on the year. Very impressive tiebreak victory over Onjabur, where Ones just got impatient in the first set, and you know Kudermetova capitalized on that fact. So, didn't play her best against Shelby, unfortunately, but another good semifinal for her heading into a stretch of the season where obviously she can have some success. Of course, for Paula Bedosa, I already mentioned, I thought she played pretty well for first tournament back in a month. You know, if you're a Nisimova and Goff on home soil, definitely would have been fun to see them reach the final in All-American final in San Jose. You know, Goff had her chance. She blinked against Bedosa, and the best players in the world will make you pay. But that said, Goff got a really good win over Osaka in round number one, and I'm not going to hold it against Goff, who hadn't played again a tournament since Wimbledon. I think she's in good form heading into two 1,000-level hardcourt events. Ditto for Nisimova, who, again, impressive over Kruger in round one. Impressive comeback against Pliskova in round two. Just didn't quite have the juice to break the rhythm of Shelby Rogers in the quarterfinals. But in my opinion, Nisimova has been a top 10 player this year and absolutely can do some damage, especially on the faster courts, as we've seen over the years in Canada. With that said, enough on San Jose. Let's move on now to Washington, D.C. and the City Open. And the player I want to start with 
is an honorary member. Not, uh, not a member, but as we've spoken about before, someone who's allowed to come hang out at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. And that, of course, is Ludmilla Samsonova, who just the racket speed she's able to generate. It's special. I don't know how else to say it. You look for Samsonova, who just the racket speed on her forehand. It just, again, I, I apologize. It's just captivating. It's like it, it really is. And just her ability to swing through the ball so easily, her ability on that backhand wing when she's able to set her feet behind it, generate the down the line pace. I mean, what was so impressive, and she smoked. Wang Shiyu to reach the semifinals in uh, to reach the finals, excuse me, in DC one and one. But the more impressive matches were against Tamjanovic and Radakanu. You know, Radakanu had four set points, all four of which Samsonova, you know, won by playing her aggressive brand of tennis. She didn't get passive in the biggest moments because that's not her game. She continued to swing through. I believe on three of the four set points, she finished the points at the net, even if she didn't ultimately hit a volley. But indicative of her mindset moving forward into the court being the aggressor. She also just had Radicano on a string throughout the course of the match. And yeah, there were plenty of unforced errors for Samsonova and plenty of double faults for her in that match as well. But plenty of free points also. And you look for Ludmilla Samsonova. She's right now in terms of ace percentage, how many free points she's just straight up winning on that first serve. Right now, uh, Samsonova for the season in ace percentage. Uh, well, she's fallen outside the top 50, actually, I believe, for Ludmilla Samsonova. But you look for her now overall on the year. Yeah, she has fallen outside the top 50. But Samsonova's ace percentage of 6.8%, you know, that would be uh, a top... 10 sort of number on the WTA Tour. In fact, it would rank 7th behind Sabalenka above Madison Keys. That's the quality of server Ludmilla Samsonova can be. And just, again, when that serve is landing, her footwork so relentless. It really does remind me of Andre Rublev's game. Like, again, a little cross-tour comparison here. Just how vicious and you know, aggressive they are with their footwork, both of them as players, how eager they are to find that forehand to be aggressive with. And just, again, the racket speed. Boy, do I love the racket speed. And just, you know, again, the overwhelming pace she can play on the inside-in forehand, the -the down-the-line backhand, the explosiveness of her inside-out forehand, her renewed willingness to move forward as well. I also think she hits the return of serve pretty cleanly. Like, it's not the biggest backswings. The forehand gets a little bit big, but... The racket speed more than makes up for that fact. Now, again, Samsonova was under 500 coming into uh, this week's action. You look for Samsonova even now by making the final here at the City Open. Still just 14-14 and 14 overall on the season. But for Samsonova, it's second pro final of her career. First since Berlin on the grass courts last season. And, you know, for her, she's made three quarterfinals this season. Adelaide, Stuttgart now in Washington, D.C. I mean, she played Iga as well as anyone on the clay courts prior to Caroline Garcia in Warsaw, right? I mean, Samsonova's ability to play that three-set match indoors in Stuttgart shows she's capable of playing the sort of power tennis that could even disrupt the immense skills of Iga Sviantek. But you look for Samsonova, who had lost seven of eight matches 
coming into DC. Just again, against Radakanu, down four set points, just kept on swinging and connected, you know, down 6 5, connected on a really impressive return of serve at the feet of Radakanu that she just wasn't able to do much with. And it was clutch, clutch, big hitting from Ludmilla Samsonova, who, you know, again, with her run to the final this week, Samsonova back into the top 50, number 47 overall in the rankings. Now, you know, 46th in the points race this year. Keeping herself alive, keeping herself in the mix, keeping herself to where at a minimum she'll get, you know, into qualies of the big events at a maximum. She finds herself getting into main draws now of the 1,000 level events and can pretty much play whatever she wants to play down the home stretch if she wants to go play as an Ostrava or Linz to indoor hardcourt surfaces where you think would favor the power tennis of Samsonova. Again, I think she moves pretty well for someone with that capable of that sort of firepower, and it's just, it's compelling. She's a really fun watch, and it, there's something aesthetically pleasing again about the ground strokes, how simple they are, yet how much that ball just explodes off of her strings. If you haven't, I highly implore you go watch Samsonova, and of course, you'll have the opportunity to do just that today. She takes on Kaya Kanepi in the final. Of course, you look uh, for Kaya Kanepi. I mentioned for Samsonova, just the second final of her career for Kaya Kanepi. It's her first WTA Tour level final since uh, January of 2020. 21, and you look for Kanepi, who of course turned 37 years old at the start of June. She is looking for her first tour level title since May of 2013. It's been nearly a decade. What you know, May of 2013, just for perspective, I was still in high school. You know, I was finishing up my senior year of high school. That's how long it's. I mean, that means nothing to some of you listeners, but you know, it's been a while. It's been a while since May of 2013, so certainly a massive moment for Kanepi, who's having just a rock-solid season overall this year. You look uh, for Kaya Kanepi here in 2022. She's now 24-11 and overall on the year, has played all but one match at the two, uh, one tournament at the tour level, and of course that non-tour level tournament was still a 125K, uh, which she played in Paris prior to Roland Garros. I mean, she's been excellent. I don't know what 24 and 11 speaks for itself. And when you look for Kanepi, who entered the week number 37 in the rankings, Kanepi back up to number 31 at 37 years old. She is the oldest player right now in the WTA top 50. I believe she's the oldest player in the WTA top 100 as well. Certainly with Serena and Venus falling out of the top 100. Yeah, oldest player in the top 100 status belongs to Kaya Kanepi. And what did she do? She made the final here. This week in Washington, D.C. Now, certainly it's been a favorable draw. She will not face a seed in her entire time in D.C. You know, Daria Seville looked a little bit banged up, had some back issues in the 3-1 and win for Kanepi yesterday. But three-set wins over Kalinskaya, a three-set win over Lin Zhu, a straight-set win over Street Minin in round number one. Can't fault Kanepi for just beating the players she's faced on the other side of the net. And for Kai Kanepi, who at times has struggled with, you know, the big matches she gets up for, the lower matches, sometimes not. She's just made the most of this draw. And you look via our friends at Tennis Abstract, Kai Kanepi, a 59.4% favorite to capture that first title over Ludmilla Samsonova today, according to our friends at Tennis Abstract. So certainly uh, that's a fun match for us to keep our eyes on. I'm leading Samsonova just because, again, Team Serena Williams, Power Tennis Country Club, but would not shock me at all to see that match go three sets. Not a lot separating the Power Tennis. Each of those players are 
capable of playing. With that in mind, just to quickly end things here on the show, let's get in. Oh, I suppose the other thoughts, shout out to Wang Shiyu, the talented talented lefty from China who got blitzed by Samsonova, just wasn't ready for the Samsonova power tennis, but a a massive semifinal for her. Talked about her leap up the rankings in our last show. And then, you know, shout out to Daria Seville, who after so many different injuries has worked her way back up to number 73 in the rankings. Hopefully she's just healthy and able to keep playing here. And those back issues we saw were more a byproduct of the tennis she's played this week than any long-term structural damage. But last and certainly not least, a shout out to the Romania champion, Anna Bogdan, who has had two impressive back-to-back weeks on the WTA Tour. You look for Bogdan, who last week made the final in Warsaw before getting knocked out by Caroline Garcia. You know, she reaches, uh, she wins the title in Romania. Excuse me. Three-set victory for her over Pana Udvardi in the final. It's the only set Bogdan drops here on uh on the week, and you look for her by winning this title. It's her biggest title probably of her career. Now, she's made a couple of WTA finals, but she fell short in both of those finals. Yeah, by winning the 125K title. This is certainly the biggest title of the 29-year-old's career, and you look for Bogdan now overall on the season. It's been a pretty good run. 36-19 and 19 overall in her last 52 weeks, 27-12 and 12 overall this year. Now, some of that success has come at the ITF level, but again, she has made the most of this clay court season. Semifinals of the Paris 125. Uh, finals in Warsaw, 125 title now in Romania as well. Uh, again, did she have the most rigorous pass? to the final? No. You look for her this week. Uh, Again, in terms of top 100 players she faced, she only faced the one in Udvardi in the final. But guess what? That's making the most of the opportunity you have in front of you. And you look now uh, for Anna Bogdan with this run of success, the 29-year-old back up to number 63 in the rankings. She's four off her career high of 59, which she reached back in 2018. I like the power tennis that she's able to play. I like how solid she is off of both wings. There are shades of Pliskova at times in her performance, but uh, again, just how well she smacks that backhand. But uh, again, credit to Bogdan, who I thought moved particularly well this week and just, you know, again, into the winner's circle, uh, knocking out Pana Udvardi, who, by the way, by making the final here at the 125K, it's her first, uh, it's probably the second biggest final of her career after the Montevideo final she made at the end of last season. Yeah, this is her second final at the 125K uh, level or higher, uh, of course, for the soon-to-be 24-year-old Udvardi by making uh, the finals here this week. Pana Udvardi now currently number 173 in the race, but Udvardi up to a new career high of number 80 in the live ranking. Shout out to you, Pana Udvardi, who you look now overall on the year. It's pretty solid. Pretty solid year for her, 53 and 33 in her last 52, 23 and 24 this year, but has tried to take a step up in the level of events that she's playing. You look for her, she won a 60K the week, you know, last week. Two players who were on fire. Udvardi won a 60K last week, loses in the 125K final this week. Bogdan losing in the Warsaw final last week, winning the 125K final this week. Shout out to the big momentum that we see unfolding on the WTA Tour. But with that said, that's 
that's your update on everything happening this weekend on the WTA Tour. Of course, again, I will be back later today to break down all the ATP action, talk about where things stand in D.C., in Los Cabos as well. And again, we're trying to do this. Why do we have weekend podcasts? A, because it was an inconsistent schedule last week. I'm trying to make that up to all of you listeners. B, five events. Five tour-level events happening throughout the course of one week. Impossible for us to keep track of it all unless we keep going here on the weekends because we know it's our job to make sure you Cracked Rackets fans remain the most well-informed, best-educated fans in the business. Of course, the reason we're able to do that is because of the endless efforts of super producer Daniel Westoff, who, as always, has a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out. The best in the business. Of course, a shout-out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is C. R15 with all of that said for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com.